Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man who witnessed a contest in the writer's room of My Name is Earl, where two writers made a bet on who could buy the craziest product on eBay while taking Ambien. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yay! Big applause today for me. Big Applause for me today, TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Nice to have you here. Uh, that's a crazy story from My Name is Earl. There were two guys, I won't mention their names, very successful writers. Uh, and my guest, I'm sure, has some writer's room stories of his own. But uh, that story, so... Uh, I think it was like like Ambien had just sort of come on the market then, and people were there was a lot of chatter around Hollywood about Ambien because people were getting good night's sleep taking Ambien, and then so what these two writers they they had a little contest, and here was the the deal with the contest was they would go home and they would take three Ambien, which is a lot of Ambien. I can test you, you know, I can testify. Every once in a while, I'll take a half an Ambien, and I'm out like a corpse. So these guys would take three Ambien. That was the deal. Then they would go on eBay, and then they would buy items uh, while they were high on three Ambien. And whoever, and then we would judge the room, the writer's room would judge who bought the craziest item. So they go off, and they come back with receipts from eBay, and the one guy won because he bought. A it was a twelve pound, three foot long key to a castle in Scotland, <laughs> and he had a picture of this three that was being shipped from Edinburgh. It cost like twelve dollars, but a hundred and twenty dollars to ship here, and he bought it and he brought in the key anyway. I just thought that was one of the craziest stories. And they never did that contest again. I think they were so glad that they woke up finally from the ambient. Um, anyway, we have a very fun show uh, today. I'm gonna, you're going to give me a drum roll. I'm going to introduce our guest, who's an old friend. He's known as the Robert E. Lee of improv. No, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> he has a southern accent. Uh, he's an old friend. Anyway, uh, He's a founding member of the Groundlings and eventually the director of the Groundlings. Then a very successful run in TV as a writer-producer. Worked on such shows as Dream On, Room for Two, and Just Shoot Me. And then he made the very smart move to get the hell out of show business. <laughs> He's an old friend. It kind of, I think back of it, like really sort of partly responsible for my career, which we're going to talk about. Anyway, please welcome Tom Maxwell. Yay, Tom! I would stand up and bow, but I don't have any pants on. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's for It's Radio After Dark. That's That'll come on that show. Uh, Tom, welcome. Thank you for doing this. Uh, always a pleasure to see you. We Great were, to see uh, you. We I haven't were, seen you in a very long time. I know. We... Um, but we have emailed, and you mentioned, I think you said you were going to come out for the Groundlings 50th anniversary. Yes, that's, uh, uh, if uh, if everything works okay, I'll be out next uh, next fall. I think that's when they're having, they, uh, they're going to have, I guess, events throughout the year or special shows or something. 
but then the big uh, big shindig will be, I think, in October. So that seemed to be a good t- time to come out. So that is, uh, just to get my dates right, because I have an appointment book. Uh, so that would be October of seventy four or twenty four. That's what you're twenty four. Is that when the ground? I was for some reason I thought it was seventy five. The ground you're saying started in seventy four. Yeah, that's when we first started actually doing shows as the ground. Gotcha. In in the there was a little before that. It was just we did some informal stuff, but that's when you know at the Oxford Theater, the Groundlings under the name of the Groundlings. That's when we started. Okay, so I I want to get to that, but go back a little bit, and because you you're not your nor you know. And I remember my first meeting you was just like, oh, and this guy has a Southern accent. And you don't equate that with comedy, but, you know, you proved me wrong. So, but go back. So you're, you're from this town of Hickory, North Carolina, which is not, you know, a swinging town. Certainly not when well, you grew up there. Well, it's certainly no Doylestown. No, no. No, they, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's... That's where I'm from and, you know, grew up in that little town. And uh, and you went to University of North Carolina, which people... I did. Eventually, I got there. I didn't get in as a freshman, but I did. I went to two years to a little uh, Lutheran college in my town. Oh, okay. And then went down there for my junior and senior year. Uh, and that's where, you know, it was a great thing because, first of all, it was people from all over the world and all over the nation. And you could meet people who weren't exactly like me, which is what, you know, kind of growing up was. Right. <laughs> and also you had, they had some faculty members there who had actually gone out and been in show business and come back to teach. So there were some kindred spirits, people who could give you some help who actually were somewhat connected to tenuously. Now I realize very tenuously to show business, but they seemed like big deals at the time. And so and, but did, when you went there, did you know you wanted to work in movies and TV and stuff? I, yeah, something. I wanted to be somehow in show business. And I wasn't sure exactly how or what the jobs were in show business. But, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, I knew that I didn't want to live like a normal, typical life. I wanted a life in, you know, that field. And so I went to... Uh, at Carolina kind of got me started, got into some writing classes and did a student film or two and sort of got a taste for it. And right. then, you know, when I left, I thought I would have to go in the Army because it was Vietnam and I had a low draft number. But fortunately, I failed the physical uh, which had its upside. At upside, I didn't have to go to Vietnam. The downside, I had no idea what to do. I had no money. Had to move back home. Right. Live in my room for a few months to make some money. And then went to New York. And uh, up there, I uh, I worked mostly on magazines. And um, I worked for a magazine called Black Sports, where uh, uh, Bryant Gumbel also worked there. Really? Time. He was selling a company called West Vaco. I don't know what the hell they sold, but he was selling stuff. And uh, uh, then I worked in an office magazine and uh, also wrote jokes uh, for comedians. Um, who I went were, who to, were some uh, of the comedians? I forgot yeah. all this. I, I'm remembering this now. Yeah, it's uh, um, so I would go uh, with these. Uh, my my niche kind of became I, I went to the improv to with some other people to, to, to do stand up 
Yeah. And uh, it didn't go very well. And a guy there who was a manager said, you know, you were really terrible, but the jokes were pretty good. Would you consider writing for some of my clients? And so I said, well, yes, I, I would certainly do that. So sure. my niche kind of became these sort of Borscht comedians who wanted to get hip so they could get on TV. <laughs> and do you and remember any of their names? Name. Huh? Did any of them become famous, any of those comedians? They all became famous at exactly the same level they were before they hired me. <laughs> and possibly a reason for that is they would never do the material. Well, it would be a situation where, you know, we get together, they talk about it, and uh, I would write the jokes, they'd like the jokes. Then I would sometimes go with them to like the Poconos. Yeah. To, to, you know, and this world that that I had never imagined. And they'd get up on stage and he wouldn't do the material. Right. I say, so what happened? Said, I just killed it. It wasn't right. It wasn't right. It wasn't right. I don't know when it's right. Well, it was never right. Right. And then I stopped getting paid and he'd say, well, what about if I just buy you some Chinese food? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I've ridden all the way to the Poconos. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd be riding through the dark and he'd be driving and, and getting faster and faster. He got angrier and angry about how people had screwed him over. Oh, my and God. Everything is like, and he's, and he's going to have to 80, 90 <laughs> miles an hour through business. the dark. I go, slow down. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we get to these places and. It was just, it was so, he really didn't need to pay me because it was so fascinating. Right. We'd be on these bills where one of the other acts was a dance team called Norton and Patricia. <laughs> and they had been married. Yeah. Now they were divorced, but they would show up with their new mates and still dance together. <laughs> and Norton who was actually a school teacher in Monticello, New York, I think he had a hairline stuffed about here, but he let his hair grow long and he yeah. waxed it and moved it forward to it like the hood of a car. That's what I'm doing now. Yes. Like that. <laughs> and they would be dancing. He and Patricia would be dancing and it would start to come unstuck and kind of go up again, like That's the hood great. of a car. So he would sort of pirouette over to the wings where his new wife would slap it down and he'd back on stage. That's it so was funny. magical. It was that, is a, that is a movie scene. You should remember that. That's so oh, good. it was so funny. It was so funny. But you were in and show business. That's all that matters. You I was there. And I remember we go back. Sometimes he'd take me back to, the, to this one guy would take me back in and we do. We go to get ice cream. At right down in Times Square. And the waitress came over and said, oh, do you guys work for the New York Times? Because it was right across the street. Yeah. And the guy said, nope, we're in show business. <laughs> and I couldn't believe I couldn't believe that we were actually That's really in funny. show business. But it was, it was, it was really funny. And I roomed with a lot of different actors who would sometimes come and go and be in dinner theater, to be appearing in these, play uh -huh. down in the village you know these really one guy was on a play called 
two one acts. One was called Red Lips, and the other was called Stalin. <laughs> and Stalin that also sounds like a dance team. My roommate, Red Lips, and my, Stalin. <laughs> Stalin. Hey, and and so my roommate played. Uh, who, oh. Who's who's the guy? Uh, the Bolshevik who got his head with the axe, Trotsky. Yeah, he played Leon Trotsky with an axe in his head, and he went running around. And finally, another girl I knew came out with a machine gun and mowed everybody down. And then uh, a woman came in and swept up like she was the maid. But the real great one was this thing called Red Lips, which was the the early, and this is like one of the little tiny theaters, you know, like three rows in a, like a horseshoe. Yeah. So nobody's more than like 30 feet from the actors. Right. So these two actors come out and they're sort of in like kimonos at a boy and a girl. and most of the dialogue, it's like waiting for Chairman Mao. Yeah. And when will Chairman Mao get here? And Chairman Mao says, finally, and finally this guy who's standing like about five feet from me whips off his robe. He's totally nude. He goes, I am Chairman Mao. <laughs> and then the girl whips off her robe. Her parents are in the audience. Yeah. For the opening. The father gets, the father, he's like 12 feet away. His father gets him his coat and starts to leave him. And the wife is going like, Ed, you said you wouldn't do this. You said you wouldn't do this. And he goes, I can't be in here with Ernie. I have no idea to this day whether that was part of the show or they were actually her parents. That's funny. But again, it was a long way from Hickory and I was happy to be there. (laughs) (laughs) So then, so you probably learned about USC film school. And that's what's got you to I, L.A. I, even in my incredible novice, eventually dawned on me that the business and the jobs, such as they were, were on the West Coast. Right. needed to get out there. And I really tried to get to graduate school simply because I wanted somewhere to go when I got off the airplane. <laughs> that I just, I mean, I just needed You knew you were going to go to Los Angeles. I might yeah, as well Los go to grad. If I land, I might as well go to grad school. I needed an address to tell the guy to drive <laughs> me to. So I got into the film school out there and still very vaguely, what would I do? What would my career be? I have no idea. Would there be a career? Right. But. Um, uh, and so while you're I, there, though, that's when you happened upon the groundlings, right? I or did. Gary Austin. I was great. Most of the work there was very technical. It was like lighting hallways and color temperatures and things that I knew I was not going to make a living at or be right. competitive with. So I saw a flyer on the bulletin board about an improvisation class started by a guy, starting by a guy from the committee. And it was at the corner of First and Vermont, which if you know LA, uh, it's you pretty know close. It is. And it was on the bus route from USC. I didn't have a car. So I just said, well, I'll just take the bus and go up there and did. And, went in and anybody could go and uh, if you had your twenty dollars or whatever they're charging and that was just the that was the night everything changed for me yeah, i, it's I just... knew this was what i'd been looking for all this time and i saw there were some people there who were very good that night and i really saw valerie Curtin. yeah work sure. if you most yeah, had a great career. Uh, great character actress. Yeah, and, and phenomenal writer. I mean, just a great, oh, some great, great movies. Great. And, so yeah. she got up, and I remember, still remember the scene she did 
where she had to place, it was like a transformation, which is something that improv people know, where you meld one scene to another to another. And she transformed into this, a woman who was a, a seamstress sewing a dress, and you could see all the space needles in her mouth and everything. Yeah. And she was so funny. And I, I said, that is unbelievable. This is like magic. I, I must somehow have more of this. Right. And, you know, I got up. I mean, I wasn't very good, but I got up. and I, But I just loved the whole atmosphere. And I got a ride home with Sam Peckinpah's daughter. It was unbelievable. <laughs> it was like the highlight of my life, the greatest thing that ever happened to me. That's uh, so funny. And so I just went back every Wednesday, and then more people started coming, and we started doing some showcases of material that we 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 did and uh uh we do all kinds of stuff i oh, mean okay hold, hold that thought hold that thought we got to take our first commercial break apparently there are commercials involved in this show i'm That's looking good. over How much Jeremiah. Do I get? um but uh anyway i'm talking to my friend tom maxwell <laughs> Uh, old friend, director of the Groundlings, one past director of the Groundlings, then went on to have his own TV career, which I want to talk about. Um, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff after this break. You're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hi, I'm Tom Maxwell, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, everybody, it's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny, it's got heart, and my shoulder appears in episode three. Hi, this is Dennis Miller. I'm here to promote nothing. Tim's a good friend, and I enjoy his company. That's why I'm here. Tim, who you say? Tim Stack. It's radio with the TV guy, Tim Stack. My uh, next guests are an improvisational theater group that have been working together in Hollywood for the past 11 years. They've just opened a, a brand new show to some excellent notices, and we've asked a few of their members to present three short pieces from that show. This is their uh, first appearance on The Tonight Show. Would you welcome The Groundlings? Yeah, I was there that day. So was Tom. We went to the Johnny Carson show. You, you just can't believe what a big deal that was, that we were all going to the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, because it was just like, yeah, I remember. And I remember Tom called. Um, Jim McCauley was the talent booker for the Tonight Show. Oh, came God, to some that, and, that and then Tom called and said, uh, well, we're doing the Tonight Show. It was just, it was unbelievable. Yeah. It had always been a goal, like when I was a kid, watch The Tonight Show all yeah. the time, to be on The Tonight Show, to be on The Tonight Show. And I remember that day thinking, thank God I don't have to go out there. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. And thank I, God John Lovitz all, went first. It's all not going to be depending on me. <laughs> I've got actual professional performers to do this. Yeah. 
No, it was just unbelievable. And I do, I, I, I still tell John that, because John Lovitz had not been in the Groundlings that long, and he got scooped up, as he should have, because he's so funny and talented. And, but, but he went out first to do The Liar on that show. And I just remember, I, ha- I did the voiceover, and I was so, and now the Pathological Liars Anonymous or something. Yeah. And I remember, like, don't, and it was only seven words or something. And I remember holding the paper, like, don't screw this up, Tim. Don't screw this <laughs> don't up. Screw and then John went out, like, and just killed, and it was, it was just great. He did. He was, did. Really he was so nervous that afternoon. We, you know, we got out there for some kind of run through, and we had an hour or so before the show. And he came up to me and just kind of said, well, what if I do it like this? Or what if I do it like that? Or what if I do it like this? What should I be able to I said, John, John, you've done this thing a thousand times. You yes. know how to do it. Just do it. Yeah. Do not try to, don't try to put any new stuff in right now. This is not the late show. No. <laughs> just do uh, it's kind of like the it comic worked, in the Poconos. He worked great, though. He killed. He yeah. could. He could really come through when the light went on. Yes. He really. is a, he is a, yes. On. A natural performer. You're absolutely right oh, yeah. when lights oh, comes absolutely. on. So um, I did want to talk about, um, well, also, John, I'm remembering back to, you're talking about him being nervous. You know, when I when I lived on Harrod Street in that apartment above Shirley Prestia, rest in peace, and, oh, and John Lovitz lived next door, John got his first TV job, and he ran out on the sort of porch, combo porch hallway, and I was sitting out there, and John was so excited that somebody hired him, he ran out, Tim, 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 I got a job, and then he threw up over the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> when he, when he, the first time, he, he was, since Lorraine, yeah, who was the first person to go to Saturday Night Live, then it was like s- several years, till John was yes. the next person, I think. And he came back, you know, came to the theater after he had first gotten it after the first break or anything like that and came in. He was very cool. He was, he was just, you know, very nonchalant. And then I went in the office and he followed me in there and he closed the door and went, it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> it was so great. Yes. It was really it's so funny. So I do want to go back because uh, when I first met Tom was my introduction to the Groundlings, which I've told this story before. I was working the Troubadour and I read about this show and and the only guy I knew in L.A. was a cocaine dealer and I didn't do cocaine. And uh, he said, let's go to this party. And I said, I'm going to see that. I read about this company called the Groundlings and I bought a ticket. You know, I went down to the theater to buy a ticket for Saturday night and I went to the show and it was just what you said. Your experience in that workshop was it was just this magical experience with Phil Hartman and Paul Rubens and Edie McClurg and John Paraga. I had just never seen Tom was the director and I had never seen anything like this. And I just knew I had to be a part of this. So then the party part was I go to the party and Phil Hartman's at the party and and said, you know, call this guy, Tom Maxwell. And so the next day I called Tom Maxwell and I got lucky that uh, they he goes, well, you got, you know, you're, lo- you're in luck. There's a class starting tomorrow night. So I run down. He says, bring a check. That's all you said. <laughs> <laughs> bring a check. And so I went down and met Tom. 
And uh, I remember he had this, and I thought the show was so good, but Tom had uh, this Southern accent and a Red Sox jacket. And I just thought, that's a little crazy. Like, that's, but I don't care because I'd seen him in the show and I'd seen the show. And anyway, that's how we met and I got class. And so that's why I really, um, you know, you and the Groundlings just fostered so many careers, so many people, you know, came through then. Uh, who will, you know, mention Tom Maxwell as somebody who helped launch their career because of the Groundlings. So it's, um, a, it's a great idea. The Groundlings was a great, great idea. And as someone said, it was so great, it could survive 10 years of me being the director. <laughs> so that, <laughs> but it was, but I remember a show, you know, when you got in and you became, you know, one of the big, the big stars there. And, uh, when I met, uh, not met, but would decided to go get serious with my wife. Uh, after we were married, I decided to get serious. Now, <laughs> the, I was we were going out, and I this I said I really want you to come see the show, and and uh, she uh, came down and to see the show, and she said, "Are you nervous?" about me seeing it i said oh no i can't wait to turn it loose it's so good and that was when you were closing the first act with d simone and i said this show is so good (laughs) there's no problem with anybody seeing it because it was really i mean there would be some would be better than others that was a particularly good one i can't remember anything else particularly in the show order that of that particular show except d simone closed the show i think i believe uh phil and i did the everbilly brothers to open that show which is a pretty good opening too it was a great opening it was more fun for me because uh phil had a little bit more time to come up with his jokes for the song and we it was an easy improv we only had to come up with like two rhymes which was really good and 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 phil had a little bit more time and sure enough he just would always just nail it like it was just and and i got to listen because i had already i had already sung my verse of the improvised song i loved it when when the two of you i always thought worked great together and You know, you said, you know, we're doing our little pre-chat about writing down some of my favorite sketches. And always, it, it's maybe the funniest single line. Um, we, did a, we did a show, a sketch was a kind of a takeoff on the movie Rebecca called yes. Paula. Paula, yes. And I remember you and I met like for breakfast in Beverly Hills and it was we kind of you kind of sketched out how you wanted it to go, and I said whatever I said and tried to get you to pay for breakfast, and <laughs> and then we, we did it, and and it started out. I was laughing about this just the other day. It starts out, and there's our friend Lynn Stewart standing center stage. Yes. And you did the voiceover, yes. and the voiceover is, she was the most beautiful girl in all, her name was Paula, she was the most beautiful girl in all of England. Don't worry, that's not her. <laughs> <laughs> and Lynn's face went like, <laughs> Part of that, and, though, was Lynn always went away. Part of the joke is, Lynn's an attractive woman, but it was, she wasn't like a knockout, you know. She wasn't uh, Joan Fontaine or whoever was in Rebecca. She was, she was Lynn Stewart, perfectly good-looking woman, but not like... Oh. She was the most beautiful girl in all of England. 
but but then, Hartman was in that you, sketch. He, he was. You, you you came in and and with Phil and. You were blind. The character was blind. <laughs> he said, thanks for letting me drive, Roger. And he had a crash helmet on. Yes. <laughs> and then, and, and, and so like, then Becky Bonner, who was Frank Sears, I thought you were, you had him, you're blind? I thought you had amnesia. He said, I have both. I've forgotten how to see. <laughs> it was a silly spoof of films like Rebecca and was, English that, noir. There were some great lines in yes. that sketch. It was really funny. But the first one, the opening line, is the funniest. It's one of the funniest lines. Yeah. And I was there for 17 years. It's one of the funniest <laughs> lines ever. Yeah, it always, it always got a good opening laugh. Uh, I was thinking about the sketch. Um, there's so much we can talk about. But I was thinking about the sketch... That always made me laugh was, uh, and there were a lot of people in it, was was I did it with Rob and Schiff, but Phil was in it and Lynn was in it, was St. Elmo's Breakfast Club, which was St. Elmo's oh, Fire God. and the Breakfast Club. This amalgamation of those two movies with these just hateful, <laughs> selfish teenagers. I got to say, I had totally forgotten about that yeah, I and and Don Woodard did the song in it because the St. Elmo's Fire video that was always on MTV was this idiot singer, and the characters were in the video, and they were acting like they were in the movie, but they weren't. And 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 at the time, that thing was huge. St. Elmo's Fire and that Breakfast Club; yeah. those movies were just so huge. Um, but but I did want you to talk about the groundlings. So Gary Austin. When he passed away, I always thought it was so interesting that he got this thing started. He always felt to me like, like it was like a almost like a hippie commune, but an improv group. Does that make sense at all? Well, it had certain elements of that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it was just uh, it just was a lot of people who just came together at the right time, right. and it and. You know, there were just, it just, like, again, it attracted people. And that initial group of people, we started doing showcases and people came and, and all kinds of people filtered. And Craig T. Nelson was there for a while. Tim Matheson, wasn't he there? Matheson, uh, Pat Morita, Jack <laughs> Sue. I mean, there were just all kinds of people who heard about this thing. And they wanted and to go wanted do to it. come see what it is. And some people stayed two hours and some people stayed two years, right. you know, and depending on how it would go. But, but, you know, um, it, it was, but then we started saying, let's invite some people to see this stuff. Let's just invite. And we, again, we do all kinds of stuff. I mean, in the very first showcase that we did, which just for invited, just for friends, uh, Lorraine Newman and I, and here you go. How did they ever decided we would do a scene from Pinter? <laughs> <laughs> you can move such a thing that was in the show. I mean, all kinds right. of things would be in the show. And so, and of course, and that's how the change changes came about. Changes was an improvised. Yeah, piece that's that we that's did my favorite years. improv game where you do you do a scene, you improvise a short scene, and then you do it again with an adjustment. Like you might do it angry, or you might do it. Yeah. Uh, urban or so whatever you want to say yeah, you do the same and, scene. And, it's very fun uh that's what gary had us do in front of the audience uh and that's that's uh um uh that's how kind of that came about and it was a, you know a staple yeah, show it always for, for a long time and the best i think the best cast that ever did that was 
the cast that we did it at the Oxford Theater would be Archie, Han, uh, Liberty Williams, Jim Lashley, and Tracy Newman. Those yeah. were the four people who did it. Kind of closed that. Show. We got to take another break for commercial for the commercial money <laughs> that's coming into this show. I'm looking at Jeremiah again. He laughs. It's funny. Uh, we're taking a break. I'm talking to my old friend, former Groundling director, TV writer. We're going to talk more about the Groundlings and his TV career. After this, his name is Tom Maxwell, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. John Lovitz, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Hey, you're back. It's It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. My guest is Tom Maxwell. Tom, do you recognize that song that was just played? No, I'm sorry. I was... I was uh, uh, my mind was engaged elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the song? It was the theme to "Just Shoot Me." Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I played ten if seconds. I gotten that? Would I want a car? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, hey, I'm talking to Tom Maxwell. As I said, uh, I played "Just Shoot Me" because he was a writer producer on that show, which I want to talk about. But I still want to go back to the Groundlings because. You know, it's just given birth to so many people on Saturday Night Live. And now, you know, Lisa Kudrow hit it on Friends and Melissa McCarthy and Will Ferrell. And all the. it's just it's crazy the people that have come out of there. But I do want to go back. You mentioned the name Archie Hahn and you mentioned Liberty Williams. And I never saw her perform. I've seen Archie perform. But at Phil Hartman's memorial to Groundlings, I kept the... uh, Archie finally came back for whatever reason. There were some politics and Paul Rubens finally came back. And I was thinking, we'll see what you think about this statement is that those two people, I think kind of, well, Gary Austin started it, but Archie Hahn literally built the theater on Melrose. And I feel like the Groundlings really came off in a big sort of showbiz sense with the Pee Wee show. So I thought it was so interesting. Those two guys came back for that sad event, but would you agree that those two guys are sort of responsible? Well, I would say that certainly Archie uh, built, you know, physically, he had a lot of skills and he built the theater. Uh, and uh, although he did not, was not there till it completed, there were some differences there that, that aren't entertaining. Right. Uh, and and uh, Well, they're perfect I, for this show. I don't want to get. I don't want to get in. I don't want to get into that. No. Uh, Paul certainly took it uh, with the Pee Wee Show. Certainly moved 
things forward uh, uh, and, you know, a lot of attention was drawn to the theater that hadn't been there before. There are so many little building blocks that everything fell together. And it, and and certainly in those early days, before I think you even joined, sort of we had turned a corner at that point. But in those early days, there were just so many moments where it all could have fallen apart. Right. And so I mean, it was just it, it's a miracle looking back on it now that at so many times that, you know, Gary would fire me or fire <laughs> Tracy or, you know, we had there wouldn't be any money. And I mean, all those early years, again, I think before you joined there, yes. at, at the theater wasn't air conditioned. I think I, I think I remember that. I can remember fans blowing and, 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 we and would, the we door opened. Like, cool, not turn the lights on, go upstairs, put ice in the swamp cooler, <laughs> you know, anything just to try to keep it under 80 degrees. Yes. I, that, and we that did two shows. So by the time the second show was over, you know, it was like you were in the rainforest. It right. was like you were on the equator. People yeah. were sweating and sweating and sweating. And that could have, but it, the, somehow the audience just kept coming. Financial problems, people not speaking to people, uh, uh, you know, couples. I don't know if you know this or not. Sometimes it would be romances backstage. Yes, I've heard about that occasionally. And then, of course, they would all break up and then there would be incredible tension and people would be taking sides. And it somehow it just kept going. I I really thought many times I said, well, that's it. That that, that's that's what you know, we're just going to I got to go find a job. I got to do them. And and so I just want to we're going to move on to the TV stuff. But but Archie Hahn and Liberty Williams, correct me if I'm wrong, were both offered Saturday Night Live, and they turned it down. Which I understand at the time, they were I, like, working on pilot after say, pilot. And, I would have to say, yes, well, nobody knew what it was. Right. I mean, nobody knew what the And you had to move to New York. And the country was, and yeah. both. I, I often heard that, believe it or not. I don't know that for a fact. But I heard it said that that was true. Well, but Lorraine... But, it, Lorraine got was, it, and she was, went to New York. L- Lorraine was was offered it, and uh, uh, at that particular time, uh, Archie and Liberty had were their careers were more established than Lorraine's was. Right. Uh, they were doing commercials and episodic TV, and and they were both doing well. They were both you know making uh, a, a good living at right. And so I guess it was more like that. But again, I don't know that's true. That I heard, I've heard that. But well, I'm telling everybody it's one true. Said it. <laughs> um, so then, so now let's, you know, we come through the Groundlings, and one of the guys in the Groundlings, uh, there weren't a lot of at the time. There weren't a lot of um, TV writers coming out of the Groundlings, and I'm trying to think. I know Rob Dames was a guy who I had once for class and then he got a TV writing gig and and executive produced Benson and I remember my first guest yeah. star role was on Benson but then a, a good friend of ours who we played a lot of golf with um, is Barry Finero and Barry sort of left our little golf group because you know at the time it was like 
Pat, my brother Pat and Tom and, and me and Barry, we'd play golf. And Barry suddenly couldn't play on weekends because he was working. And I remember you and I thinking like, oh, boy, that TV writing thing. Now, of course, you know, then we both got into it. Um, but uh, uh, Barry then goes off and he has this great career and wins an Emmy and Golden Girls. And, and then he gets you and Don Woodard. How did that work? Because suddenly then you're, well, you're, you're going to be a writer. Uh, I, I could, you know, I wanted to kind of change the way the Groundlings worked. I wanted to be more of a production company in addition to the school. I wanted to add that. And I knew it had to be, in my opinion, it had to be restructured in a certain way. Right. It was not going to work. They were, the, the membership was not going to go along with that. And I felt let me interrupt for let me interrupt for one second. One of the things that Gary Austin did when he founded this place, it's kind of like the Constitution, was it was owned. The Groundlings is owned by the people in the company. And as a result, it's like a, a golf club or a church. Yeah, the members are the ultimate. At least they were. I don't know how it works now, but that's certainly in my day. And as a result, there was a lot of voting on everything, and you couldn't really, really get the kind of authority I thought I needed, rightly or wrongly, to kind of take it to what I wanted it to be with more of a TV production company. I wanted that to be an arm. Anyway. And but people was, would come to the I show didn't... all the time and say, why aren't you guys on TV? Why aren't you... Well, it's a little bit of a socialist commune here. It's it just everybody little, has it, a it vote was, and nothing could be agreed on. Yes. And um, so it was time I needed to move on. Also, you know, I was 40. Right. And, uh, I'm 42 now. Yeah. It's uh, a long the, time uh, ago. I, I was 40. I was married. I had a house. I had mortgage. Money. I had to make more money. Right. And there was only so much I could make uh, at the theater, even doing we did a lot of corporate shows and stuff like that. But there was only so much I could make and I needed to make more. And I started talking to, to, to people, including Barry, and saying, I kind of like, how can I get into television? I, I don't know if I can do it, but I'd like to explore it. And it just so happened that he was he and his partners were leaving the Golden Girls to go to Disney to, with their own production deal. And right. as part of that production deal, they could bring some new writers with. Them. And uh, so I said, well, I would like to try to be one of those people. How yes. would I do that? He said, well, I need to see a script. And he says, do you want to write by yourself or with a partner? And I wanted to write with somebody else because i figured how will i know if it's funny no one's going to laugh <laughs> you know you need somebody there and the same way to, we need i I was used to working collaboratively right. with people at the groundlings we always wrote as a group and you know that I was, that was my way of working so i knew don woodard was sort of deciding acting as a career wasn't going to be for him so it just was fortuitous we teamed up we wrote a spec script uh they liked it. They agreed. And that is just another one of the incredibly lucky things that have happened. 
Well, he could I, have said no. Yeah, but but no, but that all makes sense. That all lines up to me because so much of show business is like who you know and connections and all that. And Barry, you know, knew obviously your friends and and he only respected your talent and and you and don wrote i'm sure a very funny script and it gets you in the door and from there it on got us, it got us and it also you know it was the right time it was like 1989 right and for the next 10 years there were lots of sitcoms on lots and of, kind of half once you shows. got through the door and got on the list and proved you could show up and you know uh do the job then you just worked yeah that yeah. was a lucky stretch to be in and then right as i was ending right as it was winding down for me was right when reality shows started to come in right and right before the big drop in pay and the drop in jobs so i kind of just caught it at the right moment another luck just luck yeah Skill. There's but some he, skill but there. I'll never, but if he hadn't done that, that change, that's another thing. Like going to the groundling, Barry giving us that chance, that changed my life. I think you would have found, I, I, I think nice you would have, I think he absolutely did that. I think you would have found, because a number of groundlings were moved. Tracy and John Stark had moved on, yeah. and the Steinkellners, and, and people had come out of the groundlings, and Jay Kogan had gotten into writing and producing, and you would have you would have found work, but it was a great run. So let's talk it was about great that. In the sense that you went out there and there was a we had a paycheck every week for like three years. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that in TV. You get no. maybe a script, maybe 13 weeks. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. It was uh, uh I've never experienced that. I've had some good long runs, but nothing. Uh so uh we're gonna continue that conversation. I want to talk about the TV stuff. When we come back, we're going to take one more break for a commercial. <laughs> and I'm looking at Jeremiah again. And uh, I'm talking to Tom Maxwell, and you're listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. It's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. Hi, I'm Jordan Black from the Black Version, and you are listening to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. <laughs> Tom, do you recognize that song? Is that the theme song from Sanford and Son? <laughs> I think they ripped off Sanford and Son. That was the theme song to Dream On, another show you wrote on. Oh, yeah. I only wrote them. I seldom watched them. <laughs> 
<laughs> that yeah. was a great opportunity. That was a sensational opportunity. Yeah, not I even, like that show. Not That's even a very cancer, clever not show. Even, not even cancer could kill that experience. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that was a great opportunity. Really a fun show to write. Uh, unique, you know, with all the clips and everything. I did have and, a question about that. Would you write the show and then find the clips or find the clips and then write the show? We had, um, we had these guys in the back that were the clip guys and you, a clip guy would be, uh, be assigned to your script. So you would write them with a slug that suggested the type of clip. Would we need be a needed. gangster clip here or something. Yeah. And then yeah, a gangster, a gangster, uh, uh, shoots up a model T. Right. And then the guys would come up once the, we got to the final draft, to the table draft. They would come up with all these clips that they had pulled from the library, which is why the show was created in the sense to exploit the library. And you'd look at three or four clips and you go, oh, that one. Yeah. Okay, we'll put that one in. And then you, you, the, the writers would modify the script to reflect the actual clip. You know, like Bob Hope whistles or whatever it was. Right. Know, that would be, that's how it worked. That's yeah. so funny. So I don't uh, know where those guys went after that. That's a very specialized job. <laughs> clip well. guys. Now, yeah. clip guys, they're just, they're done. It's over. Well, YouTube, I think, killed the clip business. Yeah. Um, so uh, you were talking just while we were on the break. Um, you wanted to mention a little bit more about the groundlings, about things. Yeah, just, just to a couple of people. There's so many wonderful so stories many there about the night how Hartman came and got up out of the audience and did impressions before the show started. Yeah, he was not in the groundlings. People, he, no, he was in the audience. He was in the audience. Got up. We, we were backstage getting ready to get read, get go on, and we hear the audience laughing already, and we haven't started, you know. Yeah. And uh, we went up and saw him. There was Phil Hartman. He had gotten out of the audience and was doing impressions, and that's the first time I met him, and he joined uh, the groundlings that night. And, uh, then two people, you know, people who Paul just died, you know, that's a terrible thing. And he certainly contributed, but somebody else who contributed equally, I think, and people don't know him is John Farragut. Unbelievable. I, I always say when I was at the groundlings, as unbelievably talented as Paul and Phil were, I think Paragon got the hardest laughs at the groundlings. Like, he the that he could create such magic within those four walls. He was really unbelievable. Yeah. I told I was when he died, I, I, I said, you know, if you went into a laboratory and said, let's create a perfect groundling. Yeah. John Farragon. Mm. Yeah. He um I remember you used to say, I'm coming up the back there. I'm doing something new. I got to see it. Yeah. And that would be in people would crowd him up the top of the stairs. Yes. He would be doing something. Yeah. Well, I remember when you, you mentioned Guy D. Simone earlier, because John always prided himself on closing the, whoever closed the first act was like, that was a big piece going into the intermission, whoever had that. And I remember when you sort of handed over the reins to me and guy and my character, Guy D. Simone, John, because John always owned that spot. And in a way, and we talked about it, he and I talked about it later, like he was a little miffed by that. He had some character. It was probably a great character, but Guy D. Simone happened to be working and 
Then he went off and he created Ramon Azteca, which is one of his greatest <laughs> characters. And it was almost like a challenge. Like, oh, really? Now, see, there's a dynamic I wasn't even aware of. Yeah, that he, he took it upon himself, like, I need to, I need to challenge myself to, to work harder. Because he knew whatever character it was, it wasn't as good as Gaudi Simone. Gaudi Simone was as good as I was going to do, but it wasn't that good. And he needed to challenge himself when he came up with Ramon. No, he, he was uh, he was really uh, somebody who uh, you know. I think it was uh, was it Julia Sweeney who said, "You know, if life was fair, John Paragon would be Jim Carrey." Yes, and yes, you're absolutely uh, right. And he was. I really have no idea why wasn't he on Saturday Night Live. I have no idea. John used to, and I know this to be true because I witnessed it for the film The Best Little Horror House in Texas because the casting director came to the Groundlings and she cast me in that and got me out of waiting on tables. But John was also at the audition because she had seen him at the Groundlings and he came out of it and he was very nervous and anxious and he said, uh, he, says, I, he said to me, I don't know why I did this, but I just did a backflip in, in Colin Higgins' office. And oh, I remember wow. thinking like, John... Within the groundlings, he was the master, and there was something blocking him from going past there. He did that Showtime special, which is on YouTube, which is the, oh, the Paragon comedy. comedy. Yeah, which is really, really funny, but it still doesn't capture that magic that he had at the groundlings. Now, he was, with a live audience, he was hard to beat. Yeah, unbelievable. And then you also mentioned Phyllis Katz, who was another just a tremendous groundling and wonderful writer and lyricist unbelievable lyricist and and i think you know there were a lot of great song improvisers yes uh, but i just never saw her miss no never and, and it was so clever and also her um understanding of different kinds of music and her sort of appreciation because she also taught song improv oh, yeah. classes and and Ugh, I mean, her Gloria French character, which was her uh, lounge singer character, one of my favorite. I t I, I'm dropping names. I play golf with now with Dennis Miller. And I, I was telling him about Phyllis, that, that her Gloria French character, she worked, she was performing at the Charisse room of the Tony Martin Bolarama. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, if my, if my voice is a little off tonight, it's because my boyfriend choked me last night. But don't worry. He called. It's all good. <laughs> Something to that hey, effect. I, you know, I've probably seen her do the piece a hundred times. Yes, and it's still... I never saw her miss. No, absolutely. I never saw her miss. So, uh, we unfortunately have pretty much run out of time. I want to talk to Tom. Tom, will you come back? Because I do want to talk about the TV stuff. Sure, be happy to. Yeah, this has been really, really fun. Uh, and there's a lot more we can talk about, about the Groundlings and about... You know, your time at Big Ticket TV with Larry Little, uh, <laughs> who yes. made the wise decision to give me a show once. Um, anyway, it was really fun. We didn't get to talk about it. And then you moved to Vermont. And the, so you, you'll have to come back and we'll talk about all this. Maybe I'll get I'll Finero to, in. I'll, I'll get Finero. I'll have some of my milking, cow milking supplies with me then. I can <laughs> show you how to milk a cow. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to talk. Well, there's another growling. Ray Colcord. We didn't talk about Ray Colcord. Like, oh, my God. What a value he was. You know, what a just incredible talent. But we're out of time, are we not, Dr. D? We are out of time. 
Tom Maxwell, thank you so much for doing this. Great to see you. Great to see you. Uh, but I'll I'll get in touch and we'll do this again. Yeah, you bet. And, and I'll get so Finero on. That'll be fun. For for all three of us. Okay. Uh, that's it, Tom Maxwell. Thank you. This has been It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack, and we'll see you next time. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.